Welcome to democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, December 5, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Heather Fleming, founder of an organization known as the Missouri Equity Education Partnership, M-O-E-E-P, or MOEEP, as I'll call it from this point forward. The partnership is a grassroots nonprofit organization that promotes an equitable community by supporting anti-bias and anti-racist approaches to education. They believe that diversity and equity education belongs in our school as much as math, science, and language arts. It seeks to engage all students in active listening, belonging, cooperation, and critical thinking. They believe in empowering teachers to teach and students to learn accurate history as well as gain the skills needed to engage with people from different experiences and backgrounds. Moe pushes back on the narrative that conflates equity with critical race theory. They point out that critical race theory is not the same thing as diversity, equity, and inclusion. They fight back against the opponents who attack any lessons and ideas they disagree with and instead push the notion of, quote, school choice. They fight back against any legislation that censors curriculum, threatens teacher and student free speech, and removes local control. In short, they fight back against the vilification of the teachers that attempt to include the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion in their lessons. Heather Fleming founded this organization, and she joins us now at Democracy on the Move. Heather, thank you for your time today, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Good. So let's get started off. I want to start talking about the background on the Missouri Equity Education Partnership, MOEEP. It's mm-hmm. um, it's a young organization, and from what I understand, you were motivated Very. to start MOEEP based on your concerns over critical race theory being used as a sort of a battering ram to undermine your previous efforts to promote equity in education. So please feel free to you know fill in the details and tell us uh, about the genesis of MOEEP and what you intend to accomplish. Yes, so I was a teacher in a public school, loved teaching. Um, And during my time as a teacher, I began to look into and to um, actually deliver a lot of lessons based around teaching other teachers how to be more equitable in their classrooms. And so that that was, you know, how to plan lesson plans that include, um, you know, diverse voices, um, even how to, you know, discuss and talk about the diversity within our student groups, et cetera, you know? So how do we address people that are very socioeconomically different? How do we address people that are racially different, um, ethically ethnically different so that we can, you know, create a classroom where everyone feels like they're safe and have a voice and, and are capable of learning. And so I was doing that work. And then in 2018, I actually decided to leave teaching in order to do that work full-time through my organization and purpose educational services. So that was the nonprofit that I founded to do this work. And um, during that time, since then, I, I've made a lot of great connections, um, learned from a lot of people and have really, you know, began to build a network of individuals who are also interested in doing this work. In April, this year, it came to a a head because I looked at some of the legislation being proposed in our Missouri legislature around equity and inclusion and um, so-called CRT. And I became very concerned because not only was it limiting what I did, but it it really named and called out some of the organizations that I work with who are doing great work in our communities. And so, you know, We Stories and Equity Educational uh, Consultants, even Teaching Tolerance, which is, you know, an organization that I've used a lot of their lesson plans, et cetera. And so I... On April 26, this is how young we are, on April 26, I just started a Facebook group that I called the Missouri Equity um, Education Support Group. And it was supposed to bring people together just so that we could talk about like, how do we push back against this? What do we do? And it it began to grow and gain more and more people. And so our first thing we tried to do was, you know, we're going to do an equity fair. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did, July 17th great equity fair um, where we 
had all of these different organizations. They came, um, they set up tents so that people could learn about like, here's what we actually do. Here's the work that we actually do. We had games and prizes for the kids. We had the firemen come in, food trucks. We had, um, you know, free popcorn and snow cones and um, cotton candy, just all of this, a, a speaker's panel, actually three speaker's panels, a DJ, and it was just a really awesome and fun day. And, but from there on July 19th, we found out that they were having a, a meeting in Jefferson City of the Joint Committee on Education. And so we decided, because we had matching t-shirts, why not? We decided to take a little trip up to Jefferson City so that we could, you know, be a, a, a show of support for equity education and, um, mm-hmm. you know, just so that we can learn exactly what is being said. And during that particular hearing, what was coming out first was was a lot of blatantly false information about what equity education is and what it does. And then secondly, you know, it was all people that were against it. And so I, I used um, in the press conference afterwards, I used the quote from my friend, Jill Merriweather, um, you're talking about us without us. Mm-hmm. And so they were doing a lot of discussion on equity education and the things, you know, the, the voices of people that look like me mm-hmm. um, without any of us being in the room capable of talking um, and speaking in support of that work. How could they accurately represent you in in such a situation like that? Exactly. You know, and I I would caution everybody. I I say this in training all the time. If you're sitting and talking about a marginalized group and there's not anyone from that marginalized group at the table with you, the solutions are going to be flawed. Mm-hmm. And that, so that's what kind of, you know, I felt happened is that there were a lot of conclusions drawn um, in that meeting and it was grossly unfair and grossly misrepresentative. And so that is when we realized, you know, this is an issue that's going to be here to stay. Do you, um, besides even going to Jefferson City, which is the capital of Missouri, do, do any of these these people in this committee even seek you out? I mean, just to meet you, you know, at your home or whatever and and get your input, or is it just totally isolated? We're going to call this committee and we're just going to talk about this issue based on stuff we read in the newspaper or something. I mean, is it? So what they did for that July 19th meeting is that they invited in people. um, It was invitation only to be able to speak. There was no way to sign up to make public, you know, public Mm -hmm. comment for it. And pretty much the the head of that committee at that time was Cindy O'Loughlin, who is representative, I think, from Palmyra, Missouri. She basically invited all the people that agreed with her. Mm -hmm. And, and so people that she had been emailing with or that had been reaching out to or that she had gotten, you know, the names from like, like-minded individuals. It's basically a big echo chamber at that point. then. Huh? Exactly. It was, a, it was a huge echo chamber. And so what she did in order to like kind of apologize for it is say, oh, well, we'll have another hearing where you all will get the chance to speak. And so that we did that on October 23rd. And I can just tell you that, no, those individuals were not seeking my voice. And actually, some of them will probably be glad to never hear my voice again. But the unfortunate thing is I'm here and I'm speaking and I want them to know the truth. You know, Um, what came out in that in that hearing really was that this was not even about equity education. This was about getting people angry enough that they would approve school choice and school vouchers. Right, right. Yeah. In fact, I was going to ask you a question about that later on. So um, the genesis of MoEP then, I mean, this is, uh, what's the purpose there? I mean, how can you, uh, are you you trying to get, uh, now that you've created this new organization, MoEP, are you going to try to get into the uh, committee hearings at uh, in Jefferson City in the Capitol? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we've organized MOEP is as a four, 501c4. 
Um, we, at this point, have signed up. We have lobbyists that will be um, in Jefferson City and watching Jefferson City. We also have six committees um, for, for our organization. It is an all-volunteer um, organization that now has hundreds of members. We're trying to get it to thousands of members. But the six committees are, of course, our marketing and communications team. We also have a, an events and fundraising team. They do the town halls um, where we try to make sure that we get accurate information to people as often as possible. Our last one was uh, a Know Your Rights, where um, a member of the Legal Services of Eastern Missouri, two members actually, came and spoke about the rights that parents, teachers, and students have in regards to their education. This next one that we will have will actually contain a lot of members of the legislature. We are, we have voices on the Democrat side that are pro-equity education, but we've also try, been trying to ask um, individuals who are on the other side to mm -hmm. also come and kind of update us and, and speak with us as well, because we do strive to be um, as bipartisan as we can, even though, you know, the reality is the issue of equity education sits firmly within one um, party over the other. So we have that, we have our, our education and youth council. Um, that is where we are striving to have a um, district captain and a Moet chapter in every single school district in Missouri. Oh, okay. And so we are starting with, of course, we're, because we're here in St. Louis, we have really a lot of information um, about kind of the ground zero districts around here where, you know, they're testing the waters to see what type of support, et cetera, they can get. And so we're trying to make sure that we really have people in those districts to push back against that. We are um, expanding into Jefferson City, into um, Kansas City. Um, and we're also trying to make sure that we're in rural communities as well. Then we have our business council where we're trying to get businesses on board with this. So, hey, businesses, can you lend your voice, your influence, and your political, you know, your political capital, as well as your, uh, you know, financial capital in order to support this organization. Next, we have our Interfaith Council. And so that is organizing um, faith organizations around this issue. And that's from all faiths, all beliefs, including we have agnostic and atheist organizations that are also getting involved and on that core council. Um, and then finally, we have our political action and legal team. And so that's where our lobbyists are housed. That's where we are, you know, making sure that we're contacting our legislators, that we are keeping people informed about what's going on in Jefferson City, um, that we are putting out calls to action um, to support certain certain um, individuals who are also doing this work. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of work going on in various realms in order to exert influence as much as possible. Um, we're trying to get as many people as possible on board mm -hmm. simply because we, you know, um, 20,000 voices in, in one is, is more powerful than, you know, 200 voices, you know, in a hundred different organizations. And so we're trying to get all of that together to the point that now we have created a, a let them learn coalition. Our hashtag is let them learn. And so we've, we've been working with some um, statewide organizations in order to join together as a coalition um, in order to continue to push back against this because we realize that the, you know, results could be devastating. And a lot of organizations are realizing that this is the wedge issue yeah. that people will use to get into office in order to, you know, also take other actions that other organizations, you know, are against. And so if we can push back against this issue, it could also save us on other issues as well. So uh, this is uh, fascinating to me, the fact that you've been able to put this organization together in such a short amount of time. And, you know, here you are, it's not even a year later, and you have already these ties to all these other organizations and, and a growing number of people. Uh, this is this is quite amazing. But, but you know, at the heart of this thing is, well, also, also want to make one more observation here. You mentioned getting rural areas and rural school districts involved. 
they may not be so involved from the critical race theory perspective, but you know when it comes the, when it comes to what happens in this thing called school choice, that's going to affect the rural communities tremendously. And we can get into that shortly. But uh, that's, um, I don't know if you know who Jess Piper is, but she's running for Missouri yes, legislature on, in Northwest Missouri. And yeah. Um, yeah, she's a great one to talk about that. She she works in a rural school, so um, she's mm-hmm. very aware of these issues. But I want to dive mm-hmm. into critical race theory itself, just to sort of give it some background or provide some background. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, critical race theory itself goes back to the late 1970s when Dr. Derek Bell who was at Harvard Law School, developed a course to study how the laws in our nation have been influenced, if not tainted, by systemic racism. And Mm -hmm. from what I understand, Dr. Bell was concerned over the fact that the civil rights movement of the 1960s, at that time anyways, appeared to have, um, for the loss of better words, either lost its way or just stalled out. And uh, from what I understand, you know, these programs such as Affirmative Action we're not having the desired effect, and in fact, uh, we're generating uh, often the opposite effect. And this concerned Dr. Bell, and in part motivated him to create this law school course, which he calls critical, mm-hmm. or which he called critical race theory. Um, now, besides some mentions in like Republican, primarily Republican campaign literature in the 1980s, the concept of critical race theory sort of retreated into academia. But over this past year, it has exploded into our national dialogue, and not because of any newfound truths in the academic circles, but the terminology itself, critical race theory, was essentially repurposed and weaponized. And it suddenly meant that any studies and any topics related to equity and diversity were now going to be carrying this label of critical race theory, which in many conservative circles just became a boogeyman. So... Mm -hmm. Here you are, you know, trying to fight this latest development, but do you worry that it's too late to put the concept of critical race theory back into the academic box from which it was extracted? Um, you know, I don't think, if we're going to be honest about strategy, I don't think that we should put that back. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I personally feel we should be asking, so what's wrong with it? You know, what's wrong with looking at the impact of um, Judge Taney and the Drew, Drew Scott um, decision, what's wrong with us looking at how his assertion that the white man, the black man had no rights that the white man was bound to respect, what impact that currently had? Yeah. Because the reality is, yeah, if we want to really look at it, we could take it to Cal Rittenhouse, yeah. how that idea is still present in our society. You know, what was the impact of um, Plessy versus Ferguson? What was the impact of some of the other, you know, laws of the 1994 crime bill? Mm-hmm. There's so many that we could be looking at. And so what they've done is that, yes, this was a purely, you know, Kimberly um, Crenshaw was very well known with taking it and running with it and, and further, you know, developing it and, and discussing it, mm-hmm. as well as the, the concept of um, intersectionality. These are all things that I teach, but I teach them in spirit and not exactly in name, I guess we could say, mm-hmm. because honestly, prior to till about March or so, I had never even heard of critical race theory. And I do this work. And the reason why I hadn't heard from about it is because it is taught primarily in graduate classes in law school. And um, so it is a, as a concept um, was not something that, that I had learned about, but what I had learned about is a lot of principles of equity education and what we needed to understand in order to really be able to problem solve and to be comfortable in the work that we're doing. Um, and that's kind of what we have to continue to work towards is, you know, no, we don't want to label this. Um, a gentleman named Christopher Rufo actually was very blatant about the fact that he's the one that, that first put this term 
into the conservative minds to become a boogeyman. And that the purpose of it was that it was so obscure that he knew that most people wouldn't understand it. And so therefore would assign their own meanings to it. Yeah. And the, the meaning that most of these people are assigned it to it in, in our school districts end up being equity education. And so these are people that have decided they don't want their children to read books about people of other experiences. That's the reason why, you know, connect closely connected to this is all of the book banning attempts. Yeah. Um, again, they, they have a strategy where, Hey, listen, we can't request that they ban a particular book because of an equity issue. So what we're going to do is we're going to label it, you know, find a part in it where there was a drug reference, find a part in it where there was a, a foul language or there was a sex, you know, sex scene right. or, or some type of mention of sex. These are, these. that's the, the strategy that they're using. And so we need to not um, respond to, I think, what they want us to respond to, but instead get to the heart of the matter. This is not about critical race theory because none of us knows what it is. (laughs) Almost none of us. To that end, I mean, I I was curious too when the term started coming up. I thought, well, I'll do, you know, I'm an engineer, so I read books, right? So I'll just order the book on this. And it was like 200 and some odd dollars to order the book. And it's like, no thanks. I mean, it's, it's basically it's, a textbook for law school students. Because it's a textbook <laughs> for law school, yeah. right? And we all know how much we paid for our um, textbooks when we were in college. Well, yeah, not only and that, so, me being an engineer well, trying to read a law school book, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind telling <laughs> right, you that would not be not, very successful. <laughs> it's not exactly, you know, like fun and um, exciting reading. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was the thing. Like, I have, I have studied so much um, as far as equity education and what works for students and how we, you know, the the psychology, how do we break down some of these really complex, complex concepts around it. I've read so much and not once have I seen a mention of critical race theory in all of the reading that I've done. I, I did the same thing. I had to go be like, okay, people are wanting me to explain it now because I do equity education. And so I did have to go and learn um, more about it, but, but that's the, the big thing to really and realize as far as strategy is concerned is that when the people come to school district meetings and say, hey, you're teaching critical race theory to my kids, we have to strategize for what they mean and not for what they said. What they mean is equity education. And so our organization, one of the things that we're going to be releasing soon is a a guide, a playbook is what we call it, that is here are our responses that you can make to this. You know, one response that we just added came from research that showed that since 2017, hate crimes in schools have almost doubled. Yeah. That's why we need equity education. Yeah. You know, we just... Yesterday, um, you know, unfortunately, witnessed another school shooting in Michigan with three young people dead and and eight injured. That's why we need equity education, Um, because what equity education does, despite what people are saying, is that it honors all experiences in the room. And that included, you know, when I was in class, that included my white students, my black students, my Vietnamese students, you know, my, my, uh, just all of my students. It allowed them to bring their experiences into the classrooms for those experiences to be honored. And then for them to be able to see where those experiences touched and related to one another. And you just realize, like, we have so much anger right now that has been placed into our national discourse. Yeah. And that's the sad result of all this. This is the sad result. Our children are not all right. One of my, another one of my friends did a brilliant video the other day, Chloe Telly, and she said, our children right now are watching their villages burn. Hmm. 
Mm. And that's what it feels like when we mm. go to when we go to school board meetings. That's what it feels like. Yeah, it's like a war zone because almost, right? It's a war zone. We yeah. had um, in one meet Rockwood meeting, a parent sat, and the whole time one of the, the administrators was speaking, he was giving this administrator the middle finger behind his sign. Jeez, yeah. You know what? What kind of a what how kind did, of a how a did we get here? Is that setting for our children, right? <laughs> exactly. This so this whole time when everyone is having these arguments and things like that, our kids are not all right. They're hearing this. Yeah. They're seeing this, and the reality is, is that this new generation is very much more open minded than any previous generations. Yeah. And if we, if parents actually listened to their kids they would find out that their kids actually don't, you know, they want, right. um, they want situations where they can learn more about different people. One of the things that I've, I've really tried to do in my own life, my children travel a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, we travel quite a bit and just showing them different people, different cultures, different experiences. Um, and, and teaching them how to appreciate it, it just really enriches our lives. And so sometimes, Dan, if I'm going to be honest, I feel sorry. I feel a little sorry for right. some of these people. You know, what what has gone on? Well, that, it's, it's, it's living it's in the, the echo chamber. Choosing, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And, and I, I think that uh, I've also done a lot of world traveling, honestly. And um, it's one of the things that I've had to learn uh, is like that old saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans. It not only shows respect, but it allows you to assimilate uh, to some degree as much as you can. I mean, I was more of a yeah. business traveler, so I was only in an area for maybe a, a, a two weeks at the most. But it's enough time to really you know, observe people and observe their customs and, um, <clears throat> and, and try to assimilate as much as possible. As one example that I'm just kind of digressing here, but uh, Paris gets a bad rap. They say, oh, um, people in Paris are very snooty toward Americans. That's not at all true. What you have to do when you go to Paris is when somebody brings you something, you say, thank you, merci beaucoup in, in French. Even though you may only only know a handful of words, at least make an attempt, right? Bye. And uh, boy, I yeah. tell you, it's it's it becomes a very friendly environment after that. But if you if you say thank you like an American or something or, or speak loud or something and, and not really aware of your surroundings and how you're affecting other people, yeah, they're going to treat you like anybody else would. You know, if, exactly. if a person from Paris came here acting like that, I'd probably treat them uh, pretty badly as well. But I want to go back to something. Now, that, here, oh. Let me give you this example. Um, I use this analogy when I'm talking to people about that. I say to them, imagine that you are having a big family dinner and you invite a friend over and that friend comes into your house and treats it the same way that they would treat their own house. Mm -hmm. We would be offended, wouldn't we? Right, yeah. We'd be like, wait a minute, why are you putting your feet up on my table? We don't put our feet up on the table, you know? Or right. why are you, um, you know, here, my grandmother gets served first. Why are you trying to be the first person to get your plate? There's just things that we need to do. And so sometimes that's what we have to realize when we're going into a new culture or we're going into a new experience. We have to remember that we're visitors. Yeah. And when we remember what that we're visitors, what that means is that we follow our host lead. Yeah. yeah. And that is just what good guests do. Yeah. And, and so that situation kind of, whenever I hear that about French people, I'm like, well, the problem is, is that we, a, a lot of Americans try to go in and treat it like their own house. Yeah. Yeah. We and, can't do that. And it's, it's, it's a show of disrespect, really. It's very disrespectful. Um, and I think that we make that assumption too often, um, it, even in, in, in this conversation and the work that we're doing, we keep making the assumption that, you know, because it is what we think that everyone should think that, you know, with the book burning, um, not book burning, the book banning, mm -hmm. um, you know, well, I don't think my child should read that. 
that's fine. That is a decision that you as a parent can, can make. The problem is you're also trying to make that decision for my child. Right. By having the books removed altogether, instead of working with the school in order to ensure that your child can't check the book out. And that's kind of where our entire argument comes in is that there are a lot of people right now that feels like, you know, what's best for their child is what should be best for every child. And um, I'm sorry, but when we look at equity education, a lot of the traditional means of, uh, of teaching, a lot of the traditional means, you know, that we used in order to determine curriculum and teaching methods and things like that, they have not been good for every child. Mm -hmm. They have not led to success for every child. We can look in district after district. And when we disaggregate the data, it shows that, yeah, this works for one particular group, but there are other groups that are being allowed to fail. Yeah. And, and so that, but basically what some of these people are arguing is that, well, as long as my child is being served, then other kids can fail. And, and I just feel like they don't understand that, that schools have a moral obligation in order to ensure success for all of their children. And they just can't do it without equity education. They just can't do it without um, teachers and administrators who are culturally competent. I use this example. The first time I was called the N-word was when I was in second grade. And it's the only thing I remember about second grade was that incident. Because my mother, you know, she was, of course, was upset. And she called the school. And the school didn't know how to handle it. This was, you know, I'll tell people I'm 46 years old. So this was... um, you know, 39, 40 years ago. And, but I couldn't, they didn't handle it well. And as a result, that became a traumatic experience. It's the only thing I remember about second grade. Fast forward to my daughter, she was in fifth grade. But the difference this time was that she had very culturally competent um, administrators and teachers Mm -hmm. at, at, at that level. And so when it happened, um, when I tell you how well they handled it, how they talked to the, to her about it, how they talked to the, the student that they called, you know, called her that about it, allowed the two of them to come into the room together and to be able to um, discuss it, communicate it with parents, um, even communicate it with other children in, in her classroom that heard it. And, and didn't understand the, the severity or and consequences of it. Right. Uh, it. It became another memory because her best memories are actually of her teacher who, who appreciated her so much and, and, you know, really encouraged her and talked, talked to her, and, and et cetera. It was with the, the other students that she was in class with and the friendships that she made as a result. And so that ends up being a difference. For me, it's a traumatic experience in memory. Yeah. For her, yes, it was an obstacle to get over, but she had people both at home and at school that could help her navigate that. And that's what we want for all children. And basically what these people are saying is that, well, no, that's not education. That's exactly what education is. It's setting up a precedent for how adults handle uh, conflict, right? So if you have a problem with someone else, you know, what do you do? You you flip them off, or you get your crowbar out and start swinging, or do you, you know, talk it through and, and come to a common, common agreement? You know, and sometimes well, you have to agree to disagree. Part is that within so many of the districts, um, parents are using the first model. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you talked about, about book banning earlier, and I just wanted to return to that because I saw something which, which really made me laugh this morning was mm-hmm. um, the Governor Mike Parson, who is a Republican. Uh, I think it was this morning he put out a tweet that uh, was basically appreciating Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, who is a, a native Missourian, and right. said, um, you know, his <clears throat> he, he wrote some great books. <laughs> and so it just harkened back to in high school when I read Huckleberry Finn, 
And um, I read it and, you know, did the book report or whatever and kind of dismissed it out of my mind. But when, when, my son, when my own son, he was probably about 10 years old, I thought, well, let's read this book together. And uh, I saw it in a whole different perspective. I thought, oh, my gosh, I, you know, we started reading this book and I said, you know, I'm going to have to now explain to my son the entire history of racism and slavery in this nation and, you know, and how this book was was uh, the motivation for writing this book. And, you know, some of the language in the book is not that nice, right? So, it, oh, no. But the overall concept uh, is pretty Just to let good. you know, I was a, a high school English teacher. Mm-hmm. And so um, I didn't, I don't think I mentioned that when I said I was a teacher. It was um, high school English. And so I really understand, you know, the superfluous use of uh, the N-word. Yeah. Um, even like the, the still um, complex relationship with, you know, a, a young boy who was white placing a, an older black man on a lower level than him. You know, it, it's yeah. so many aspects to think about and discuss. I had that experience with To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in mm. a ninth grader. We read To Kill a Mockingbird sure. in high school. And I was like, oh, yay, a book about race. And then I reread it when I became a teacher. Um, because I was supposed to teach it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the, in the subtle messages that it's sending. Well, it, it did show also Atticus Finch, I believe was the protagonist there, the lawyer. Uh, if I remember correctly, he mm-hmm. always had a good mind about what he was doing. And I thought that was a good role model. Uh, you, you've obviously studied the book a lot more than me and I'm going by memory that having read it maybe 20 years ago, um, but I thought that was actually, it, it showed racism for what it is, but it also showed how a responsible person should act in this environment. Do, do you agree with that? Um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think that in, in my training, I teach about anti-racism versus non-racism. Mm-hmm. Atticus is a prime example of non-racism to where, yes, he understands the system, he discusses race, but he um, only barely does anything to make a a change. Mm -hmm. He doesn't challenge, um, well, he challenges some people, right? but it was in the interest of his, you know, of Tom. Um, The problem is, is that that book was pretty much Harper Lee's love letter to her own father. Atticus Finch was modeled after her own father, um, who was the, uh, one of the attorneys for the Scottsboro boys who were four um, young men, black men back in the thirties, I believe who were charged with um, um, carrying white women over state lines Mm -hmm. and rape and other things. And it was a false accusation. They ended up having, being exonerated, but they had to fight for years and years and years. And so when we, when we understand it from that lens, that's fine. But the, the, the biggest message that I thought that, you know, erroneous message that it sent was the idea that, that people like me should just be tolerated and not, not accepted and celebrated. Mm, okay. um, yeah. You know, he was, he was, Atticus Finch was okay with Tom. Um, as long as Tom lived on the other side of town, you know, and then you have this horrific event that happens where Tom is, you know, spoiler alert people, where Tom is, is murdered. And, you know, the, the book examines how um, Jim felt about it instead of what the family was actually going going through and so it just that was kind of problematic if we're going to and the other part that was problematic honestly dan it's not even teaching the book it's the way the book was taught for a lot of white teachers that book was race literature so it was it was to be taught in order to give insight into what happens you know race race wise in our country and unfortunately it didn't and, um, you know, for that, those types of conversations, I just would prefer an authentic Black voice. So reading um, the, the Bluest Eye, reading 
um, purple hibiscus. Um, reading the ones that I gave to my children is I know why the cage bird sings mm-hmm. um, because that really was getting people to understand what's happening and and how it is viewed by the people that um, it happens to. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm learning Sorry. something here. No, this is good. <laughs> All of my family has heard my tirade. Family and friends have heard my tirade. <laughs> no, that's that's very good. You've you've given me a, a different perspective on things now, and I I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I love books, and I and that's why I think this whole attempt to ban books is so painful, um, because of the fact that I used to tell my children, my students, that you know, read the book, and then let's discuss why you hated it. You know, we can talk about why you hated it, too. We don't have to just talk about, um, you know, the symbolism and, and et cetera within it. We can also, you can also tell me, I hate this book. And here's why I don't like it. Yeah, as long and, as it's an informed opinion then, right? Yes. Yeah. And so in banning books, what we're also banning is is kids' opportunity to um, consider different experiences, of course, but then also to think critically about um, a variety of topics and you know with me it was one of those things where if you read something you have a different opinion than I do okay let's examine that let's analyze it let's think critically about it and so for parents to be like just just by me introducing this book to you and discussing the the nuance um, themes etc within it that I am somehow trying to indoctrinate you, you know, hey, if I could indoctrinate kids, all my assignments would have been turned in well, yeah. you know, yeah. and on time. Um, if I could indoctrinate kids, then I could get them to stay off their cell phones while I was teaching. There's so much that it's like, hmm. you're giving me way too much credit for it. Because on top of that, I have, a, uh, as an educator, I had a moral obligation to not um, try to bring my politics into it and to um, examine, um, you know, whatever it was, whatever topic it was mm-hmm. from a very neutralized view. And so if just by me providing information to my students makes it, you know, liberal or whatever, then um, I think that claim is is where they try to um, sour Number, number one, ac- academic freedom, but then number two, you know, it really does impact our children because they have to be able to think critically about situations. Sure. They can't necessarily do that just, just seeing one perspective and one side. But then they're also, unfortunately, on the other end, um, like that scandal down in Texas, you know, there are some things that, that are just wrong. Yeah. And I can teach yeah. that. The Holocaust is wrong. There were no two sides. Right. Um, and, and it should never be presented as two legitimate and equal sides. Um, so, well, let me uh, let me move on here a little bit, because I want to um, ask you this other question here, because you, you're talking about people who uh, largely don't see the points that you're trying to make. You know, you're not trying to indoctrinate children. In other words, you're just trying to get them to think. And. I think parents have been are getting increasingly solidified in their perspectives of being anti-equity type of teaching, but I have to look at you know what's what's going on behind the scenes here, and, I, and maybe this is a bit of a political question for you, but uh, do you worry that uh, this whole brouhaha over critical race theory is a proxy for other motivations? For example, the motivation by perhaps large industries to move money out of public schools and into private schools? Oh, yes. Um, As I mentioned earlier, during the, when I was there testifying at the August 23rd Joint Committee on Education hearing, um, a a great majority of the question and answer um, dialogue was spent in conversation with Andrew Koenig, uh, who is one of our senators. And it was about school choice and the vouchers. And so this is, this, in my opinion, it's, it's serving two purposes. Um, one is to motivate their base 
right in order to get out and to vote by giving them um something to fear you know right. here's the yeah. newest monster for you to fear i think that we got a little complacent and mm-hmm. in, in believing that racism did and, and xenophobia and hate did not um, matter as much in our society. I mean, after all, we had a black president. We had right. we had so much good stuff. You know, um, LGBTQ community. They're gaining more rights. We're having these great conversations, etc. And I just think that we underestimated. And so we stopped calling out and, and having very hard discussions yeah. about um, race and, and racism. And the result has been that quietly behind the scenes, and, and sometimes not so quietly, um, you've had a lot of you know talk show hosts and, and television stations and news outlets, et cetera, that have been um, you know, subtly feeding this monster yeah. to continue to grow. And so what we're seeing now is a base that is at times um, activated by some very blatant examples of racism. Sure. Right now, yeah. one of our, you know, Lauren Boebert, who is one of our um, representatives from, I believe, Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. Um, you know, the big scandal that she's going through is that she keeps making comments about Ilan Omar right. um, being a terrorist because Ilan Omar is Muslim. Right. And it's they're saying the quiet parts out loud. Right. And we used to be in a place, and I think that now we're seeing what the impact of that was. Um, where people, it, it was political suicide to say the quiet parts out loud. And now uh, at this point, it, it actually motivates people. It gets people excited. They, they clap about it. So that's, that's the first reason why. And then the second reason why is to further their goal. They've been working on this voucher thing for a few years. And so they're using a lot of different approaches in order to try to get this voucher idea through. The problem is it's gonna be very damaging for so many communities. When we have local schools in the inner cities, when we have- um, Well, it's the rural areas is what I think it's gonna affect the most because um, if you're living in in an urban area, maybe, just maybe there's a school nearby you that Mm -hmm. uh, that gives you the so-called school choice. Um, mm-hmm. But in rural areas, I, I read this, uh, I read uh, Jessica Piper wrote this uh, essay about it uh, recently online. Um, yeah. I can't quote it exactly, but she said something to the effect of the closest private school to her location, she lives in a rural area, is like an hour and a half drive away. Mm-hmm. So, and so obviously there's, no, there's not going to be any bus service, you know, you almost need like helicopter service for something like that. Um, this is really just, uh, and I guess that's what I was sort of looking for in my question. This is really kind of a, a proxy fight to drive the hundreds of millions of dollars that are, that are, uh, that are being spent annually, um, probably close to a billion actually that are being spent annually educating our children, redirecting that into private industries for running, uh, charter schools or private schools. We talked to um, um, Deb Lavender recently on a podcast. She was a representative here in Missouri. She yeah, cited love this. Deb. Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks. Because she she cited during that during that podcast. And again, I'm going by memory here, which isn't always that accurate. But I believe she said something to the effect of half the charter schools in Missouri here don't survive. They they go out of business. They don't. And they so. Do. Yeah, this to me it's a it's a blatant money grab and this it is. stirring up the CRT is really the motivation behind the scenes. It's, and probably if you look the big money behind the scenes is that they're trying to uh trying to get parents to gravitate more toward private schools with public funding. Right. Um and that and that ended up being something that I pointed out because right now they do have some some mild um, legislation around 
um, vouchers Mm -hmm. and it would only direct 6,000 or so dollars a year toward private schools. Who does that benefit? Because most of the private schools here in St. Louis are $20,000, $30,000 a year. Yeah. So who is that still benefiting? It's still only benefiting the very, you know, people that are already wealthy. Yeah, the other people that already you know, have people the money, that are already right? wealthy. That's all. Yeah. It's, that's who it's benefiting. And so, well, what they're going to do is it will basically be a tax break for the rich. Yeah. Because again, you have people in rural areas that can't even take advantage of it at all. They don't really have private schools and charter schools in their area. And then when we look at um, where they do have charter schools, which is, you know, St. Louis Public Schools School has it, and I believe that Kansas City has it. Um, where we do have charter schools, we're taking away from districts that are already, well, number one, they are primarily um, African-American. Mm-hmm. And then number two, they're already cash poor districts. Right. They, they are unable to spend as much. Now, St. Louis Public Schools has done a really good job of making great use with what they with what they have, and they've also been able to increase a lot of their um, revenue. But it, so they they are able to spend more. Um, as I looked on, you know, up some of that data. But the the reality is is that if we take away those abilities, what's going to automatically happen? to those local school districts if we're taking away the, the money that they're using in order to benefit the the students that are in their local public yeah. schools. It's well, going to it's, negatively it's, impact them. It's, uh, I calculated one time, there is approximately, uh, just in Missouri here, and I know this is a nationwide podcast, but using Missouri as an example, uh, Missouri has about uh, 120,000 students currently enrolled in private schools and to quote your six thousand dollar figure from before, um, now you start to work that work out the math. Six thousand times one hundred twenty thousand. Um, okay, so that's over what seventy two seven hundred twenty million dollars that's going to mm-hmm. come out of public funding or school funding for public schools is now going to get redirected to private schools. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Wow. I mean, in the people, like you say, people in rural areas are not going to be able to take advantage of this at all. So it just takes money out of their schools, right? right? So they're using this as the wedge issue um, mm-hmm. because we already here in Missouri, unfortunately, we, we have a super majority. Yeah. And, and what ends up happening and what is so unique about Missouri is that we used to be a purple state. Um, they have been able to really weaponize like, and create a cultural war between Republicans and Democrats to where people view being one or the other as a moral failing. And so what happens is that when we get progressive issues on our ballots, we pass them. But because we are so entrenched in this R versus D war, we also go um, and collectively elect individuals who have openly stated that they're against those progressive measures. That is what happened. We agreed to pass Medicaid here in Missouri so that we can begin taking taking, um, part in the federal program under um, the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. and offer more insurance to people in in our state. Right. Well, after we passed it, our state legislators did what they could in order to make sure that it wasn't funded, which would essentially mean that the program was not implemented. And it took a court case. It took people suing the state and the state legislators to make them have to provide the service that we had voted for. Who are you representing if you're not following the will of the people? And so that is what our organization is trying to do is to let them know, no, yes, there are some voices out there that are against equity education, but there are more of us who support it, who want our children to be able to experience this, who want our children to be 
culturally competent in an increasingly global society so that they can meet with success to have various opportunities, that's what we want. And so we are, are joining our voices together in order to ensure that you do the will of the people one way or the other. Um, you, and, and the biggest thing that people don't realize, they always frame this as, you know, like here's how it benefits people from marginalized groups. But the reality is it benefits everyone. When we look at statistics about, you know, our economics and things like that, we suffer, white people suffer from racism as well. One example that I recently came across, it may have even been from Jess Piper, um, but one example I recently come, came across is that there is a um, rural school district that is unable to hire a Spanish teacher because the surrounding community is so steeped in racism that there is no Spanish teacher that wants to move there to teach Spanish. Hmm. Wow. Well, Spanish is the second most spoken language in the world. And so here are these kids down in this rural town that is being, they're being negatively impacted by racism, even though it's not directed at a particular person or minority. Right. They're, and that's they're what we have to start education. thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned um, Medicaid. Um, I can go down the list with Missouri. The right to work was the same thing. It's constantly being um, pushed by clean, the legislature. Clean Missouri. Yeah, <laughs> Clean Missouri is another one, too, where uh, the, the voters continuously, every single time given any opportunity, they will vote uh, in the positive for these progressive issues. And because there's a supermajority of people on the other side, we'll call them, um, they find a way to strike them all down. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's to the point now where you, you, I think, I forgot who that was recently that said, why do we even have school districts? Let's just let the Missouri legislature run our schools. Um, you know, cynically said, of course, but um, it's, it's, uh, it just harkens back to this idea of the, the Republicans, and I'll just, I'll just call them out, the Republicans had at one point this, small local government approach to things, it's now become a centralized uh, authoritarian sort of government, at least in Missouri right. here. And, I, and I'm afraid it's actually beginning to happen in other, uh, other states as well, including Texas. So that, is a, being a, that ends up being a realization for us to have as well, is that at this point, um, in a lot of ways, we're not just fighting for equity education, we're also fighting for democracy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, and for absolutely. the, the yes. continuation of democracy. I think that um, what the past five or so years has taught us is that democracy as a concept um, depends wholly on the integrity of the people that we elect yes. to be in positions of power. And if there is a lack of integrity, if there is a lack of understanding, if there is a lack of um you know, true support for de democracy and democratic principles, then it is very easy for us to lose our democracy. And the, the unfortunate part is that right now, we've got to get people into positions that can um, strengthen our democracy to the point that, that, you know, one person or a group of powerful people cannot turn us into an authoritarian government, uh, a fascist government, yes. et cetera. And, and what they've been really good at doing to get back to the CRT thing, they've also really tried to connect CRT with Marxism mm -hmm. yeah. because one of um, the principles um, that critical race theory pulled from was just critical theory in general Mm -hmm. um, and so Karl Marx used critical theory in order, but he, he applied it to class and he talked about how, um, you know, people in positions of power have used laws, et cetera, et cetera, to 
in order to keep people in specific classes. And so it ended up being a class issue. And he's not the only person that, that they pulled from. They also pulled from, I think, Michelle Foucault and um, Max Weber and a few other really well-known philosophers. Mm-hmm. But what they have done is they said they, they focused in and honed in on um, Karl Marx and they said, this is Marxism. Yeah. And the problem with all of that is that, of course, Marxism is an economic system. And it, it is where basically the people, the workers control the means of production. Right. Nothing in critical race theory <laughs> talks no. about that no what critical race theory does is of course it it examines again how our laws have impacted our um have have impacted certain groups over over others yeah and that's the other thing that we've got to um really fight against is is people's attempts to change the narratives to um you know stick a red red herring or three or a thousand into the discussion we've got to fight back against that because right now we are are seriously in danger of losing our democracy and this is the issue that they're going to use in order to get in so that they can do what they've you know and and the sad part dan is so that they can do what they already said that that they want to do and um, what we also realize is that there are a lot of people that are okay with that, more than you would think. Well, I think um, that people have been talked into it a lot, too, because they've been so yeah. scared. They've been so convinced that uh, the boogeyman is out there, and they, they're willing to trade their freedoms and democracies for a bit of security, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we do have to wrap this up here shortly. I just want to ask you, uh, this is what I would call our call to action section. Um, yes. What can interested people do to help make our education system a more equitable institution? Um, number one, I'm going to ask everyone to please join MOEB. And so you can visit our website at www www.missouriequity.com and we spell out Missouri. Um, and it's all join one us word there too. and join our, our newsletter will be um, our newsletter. Uh, that's how we our mailing list basically is how we'll be putting out calls to action, how we'll be putting out information and, you know, offering people opportunities to to get involved. Secondly, um, right now, there are a lot of school districts, December 7th is the deadline for filing for um, to serve on your your school boards. Um, if you are able to, or you know people that are able to, you have until December 7th. And I believe you said this is gonna be released on December 5th. So if you're listening, you have two days to get people um, to sign up for school boards because they're, they are really getting candidates in who are um, very vocal about wanting to end equity education within our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the next thing is that, um, you know, if you know of, of grants, if you know of, of opportunities um, for funding for our organization, that would be really, really helpful. And the reason why is that the other side is very well funded by, by well-known names yeah. and by well-known organizations. And so they've been able to, you know, buy ads, to buy paraphernalia, to um, hire people who work on this full time. At this point, everything that we've done, even with all the organization, has been volunteer. Wow! And that's wow. only sustainable for so long because you know <laughs> I still have children to feed. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, and the people that are doing this work, they the same thing. They're trying to do it around families and and you know still maintaining their full time jobs and things like that. And so, what our organization would like to do is to be able to hire someone who is a full-time fundraiser to hire someone who's a full-time organizer for us. Um, and for some of our staff that we have within purpose to also be able to do this, this work um, around, you know, MOE. And so that we really have some things um, going, you know, we, Good. I have some immediately uh, immediate thoughts about, you know, ways that we can get our message out. 
But the bottom line is that we just need, we need help, we need voices, we need um, funding, and, and we need people who are passionate about this and really understand what the stakes are. Um, the stakes are high, and the stakes are high not just for uh, equity education in general, but for our whole um, democracy. And so, yeah, we just want passionate people on board as well. So join our, our mailing list, and, and we can get you going from there. Good. So that again is www.missouriequity.com. Missouri Equity is spelled out as all just one word. Um, mm-hmm. And finally, uh, quickly here, do we do you have or do are you aware of any sister organizations that are listening in other states? Because this is a nationwide podcast, but uh, we focus a lot on Missouri. But I use Missouri as an example for the rest of the country. So, are you aware of any of the sister organizations or perhaps nationwide organizations that advocate for equitable education? Well, yes, there's lots of organizations that do. Um, We are still making connections here. There's none that I've come across that are organized quite like we are um, around this issue. But um, there, for instance, we just got connected with the um, um, African-American Policy Forum which is Kimberly um, Crenshaw's organization. And so they're having conversations and trying to organize around it here in the state of Missouri. It's of course the national, um, the NAACP National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Um, I believe that this is something that they're trying to do statewide. When we look at the National Education Association, the National, um, the National Committee of Teachers of English, um, there's just NCTE. There's a lot of um, different organizations. So I would urge you all to get involved in anything in your state that um, is, is organizing around it. If you're at a national, um, you know, you're coming from outside of Missouri, you can still join MOEP and, and you know, look at some of the things that we're producing because we're also going to put, be putting out information that even if, you know, you're, you're, aren't here in Missouri, you can still use that information in order to um, fight back in your local school districts, um, et cetera. And so we we just invite a lot of different people to join in and we continue to make um, connections. And so we will also be letting people know what those connections are and how to get involved um, with those people that we do connect with. Wonderful. Good. Okay, so we've been talking with Heather Fleming, founder of the Missouri Equity Education Partnership, MOEP, an organization that promotes an equitable community by supporting anti-bias and anti-racist approaches to education. Heather, thank you very much for joining us today at Democracy on the Move. Thank you. Time flies when you're having fun. So thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. Democracy on the Move is all one word. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you would like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode.